Hey, I'm Simone Sol, and I'm your Korean mom. This podcast is going to offer you unconventional marketing wisdom, and I'm going to push you to be more authentic and uncensored. And guess what? It's all going to be a ton of fun. Let's go. Hey, friends. Recently, I was invited to my dear friend Luis Mujica's podcast to talk about something that I haven't spoken about a lot on this podcast, although I have a little bit in the past, which is about racism and how our bodies carry it and how we can somatically engage ourselves to change it. And I want to invite you to listen to this episode, which was originally published in Luisa's podcast, just called Holistic Life Navigation. Highly recommend. And I kind of want to read his invitation verbatim that he posted because I was like, I can't say it better. So Luis says, anti-racism without the body may be futile because it's just a concept, a performance, an identity. I can claim to not be racist. I can want to not be a racist, but what about my body? Overcouplings are somatic and unconscious. We don't even know they're there until we become embodied to them. We have to feel for them. Healing racism through a somatic lens is potent and takes you directly to the root of, you know, which is, what's the story your body tells about another body because of their color or features? When my body braces because of your skin tone, eye shape, hair texture, or other physical characteristics, there is an overcoupling associated with bodies of your culture. That doesn't make you a racist. It's the nature of having a body. And if we only speak about being racist without also identifying parts of our bodies that hold bias against people, we'll be going in circles for generations. So Simone, he's referring to me posted about the offense of telling someone that you don't quote unquote see color. I wanted to go deeper into the subject and explore overcouplings. So I invited her onto the podcast to discuss this with me and my team. I see your color. I see your difference. I see your beauty. And I can feel parts of my body responding to you based on developmental programming, my own experiences, and even what I inherited from my ancestors. That's not mine but it lives in me and may affect how I relate to you. The shame of bias often prevents us from healing and releasing racist tendencies, beliefs, and actions. So come listen so you can learn how to have big conversations like this while staying rooted in love and connecting around the shared desire to release anything inside of us that prevents us from connecting with another person. Okay, everybody. I'm really happy to welcome back to the show, Simone Grace Soul. Thank you for being here, my friend. I'm so happy to be back. <laughs> Thank you. And th- this is the first time that the HLN team podcast had a guest. So it's also really cool. We have Camille Marika here as well. Honored. Um, yeah, really, really happy for this. So th- this came about like a lot of things in my life where I'll read something someone writes or some something they do with their work and I get inspired. I reach out to the person, a dialogue is created and there's more nuance that need, needs to happen. So we do a podcast. So Simone was talking about this, the phrase, the statement, I don't see color and how that can be you know, extremely offensive to people. And I'm always curious, like what, what propels the statement? Where does it come from? What does it mean? And I, I've played with that statement myself in a lot of different ways throughout my life. 
And I've, I've come to learn so much about race and prejudice and racism itself through the lens of overcouplings, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And Camille and I wanted to talk more about this publicly and teach it, but it just hasn't happened till now. So thank you for the post, Simone, to kind of like inspire me because I wrote to Simone, I, I commented and I said, oh yeah, I totally see color. It's the overcouplings that I'm, I'm aware of now. And, and you were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And and I said, and I said, awesome. <laughs> like, let's have, you know, let's do a podcast. And you just dove in and we got you on the schedule really quick. So that's what we're going to start with. And I thought what well, we could start by doing first, Camille, you and I could riff just some education around overcoupling racism prejudice first. So people listening kind of even understand what that term means. So Simone understands what it means. And then we can all have like a, a conversation about our experience with this statement, this, this term, you know, how we want to go with that. So I'm actually going to let you start and then I'll add to it. Yeah. So when I think about overcouplings as it relates to race is with my work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and this is a lot of it's related to bias, bias training. And I find a lot of people don't want to understand their biases. They're like, what? I'm not racist. I can't possibly have biases. And it's because a lot of us conflate bias, prejudice, and discrimination into being one thing. Now, those three things are absolutely related, but they're different. And in my opinion, it's important that we understand the difference. Biases are, in my opinion, are overcouplings. These are the automatic associations we have related either to race or other forms of identity, just things that we have been conditioned with. doesn't make us good or bad, right or wrong. It's just the way our minds, our minds work. And then the way I think about prejudice is the rationalization or the justification of those biases. And then discrimination is when we act on those. That's the preferential treatment that we give to others based on the prejudice that's rooted in those biases. So that's how I think about overcouplings, again, as it relates not just to race, but just other form, all forms of identity, the automatic associations we have related to them. When you say overcoupling, you mean the coupling between ideas and identities or ideas and maybe appearance or ideas and like certain things unconsciously get coupled with and anchored in to the unconscious mind with other ideas and things. That's what you mean? I'm looking at oh. Camille. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. So somatically when we talk about overcouplings, the way I'd like to describe it is yeah, automatic associations. The things we we reflexively associate with something. In this case, we're talking specifically about identities, but it could be anything. Like I could have a a physical reaction to the smell of cinnamon because something happened in my life. And when cinnamon was present, so now my body always responds as if there's threat present when cinnamon is there. So that's just overcouplings in general. But yeah, we absolutely have overcouplings related to identities, a whole bunch of them that come from different places. Yeah. In my world, we call them unconscious anchors. Same thing. I I now see that we're talking about the same thing yeah got it that's yeah. right and what i think what's so important about it if we hear unconscious anchor and overcoupling through like overcoupling is a somatic term it, it particularly got it, got it because the understanding of the subconscious through somatic lens is that the subconscious is the body so even Absolutely. when you have that term unconscious anchor we can like notice oh there's an anchor it goes into a place body. right and that's what's so important about this discussion that i think makes the recovery work with racism so difficult is it becomes so cognitive. And if we understand exactly what you just said, Camille, like if we see bias as a somatic experience, 
then what we we get is like oh through my development even what i inherited from my lineage there's like a felt sense a felt constriction that happens when a certain person is in front of me that's huge because your mind might be like i know that person's safe and your body might be having a constriction to them and then you behave from that constriction that's where things like performative allyship and saying things like i don't see color reflexively and you know marika you've given me examples of some people that you've seen in, in spaces all that gets birthed from those those somatic you know those places in the bones that are bracing against an individual because there's an unconscious bias or overcoupling and i think if we kind of start with that piece of how different that is from actually being racist, that feels very important to me because most people won't even enter this territory of discussing these things, like you said, Camille, because they're so afraid if they find an unconscious bias or an overcoupling in response to another race or color or sex or whatever it is, that they're automatically this horrible, terrible person. They don't even know they're doing it. So it's like, if we create space there, there's so much more we can accomplish of actually laying them out. Everything that you said is so fucking important and so true. And you don't even have to be an expert in somatic stuff to affirm that this is literally true. So many research studies have proven time and time and again that these overcouplings exist or whatever. I'm going to keep calling them anchors because it's confusing to my brain. But, you know, like people of color have overcouplings that are negative towards their people of their own color because it's the programming that we're fed again and again. And so if you think that you're immune from this, then you're something you should think about. <laughs> Some research, research studies you go look up because ain't nobody immune, right? And Well, what, that's, that's the humanity of it right there. Is yeah. like, like you said, no, no one's immune to it. There, there's an innocence to unconscious bias that actually, if you can tap into that, you can so deeply work with what's in your body in response to other people without the shame that would have you fawn or do performative allyship or, you know, what else? When you double down on your innocence, there is a point where I think it becomes malicious. What, tell and me what that means to you, though. What would that look like? I think there are... Innocence is obviously innocent. I think when you want to keep defending your innocence, when presented with the opportunity to think differently about it, and it, I think it's a hundred percent connected to what you're saying, which is that, you know, it is a really hard thing cognitively, but for people to wrestle with the threat of, am I a bad person? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I get it. I get that defensiveness. And I have seen so many people just be on a campaign to prove that their innocence is innocent and that they don't want to look at, oh, that wasn't my intention, but what's happening there anyways. That's like my point. I think for me, and I'm curious what everyone else thinks, the innocence is like a vehicle to not have the shame that would keep you from going there. And then when you're there, you can actually bring these things out and unfurl them and bring them to the surface and work with them consciously. Right. But if there's a, like I hear this double innocence piece, if the innocence is used to justify behavior, that's the whole that we're talking or about. Innocence is used as, justi- as, a, as a justification to not get curious about your blind Correct. Spots. Correct. That's different. Which I so agree. many people hide. Be- I'm going to put my own fucking family on the line <laughs> and say, <laughs> I have exasperating conversations with my own husband who is in so many ways very aware and a, a very intelligent person, but who keeps having these fucking debates with me about how women are basically equal to men and they have nothing to complain about in society. Mm-hmm. And 
I just have to, I can't even go. I mean, I said it kind of in an exaggerated way. He doesn't say it quite like that, but basically like women's rights are now equal to men's rights. And he keeps doubling down. <laughs> I'm like, first of all, why would you not just fucking listen to what I have to say? Cause I'm a woman and you're fucking not. And I just get so angry about it. And so that's where I think you're kind of being an asshole. If you're not just like, okay, let me listen to you. Cause I have no idea what it's like to be a woman. You know what I mean? So that's, well, this is where I wish he was here because I would be so curious, like what happens in your body when you're telling mm. Simone she's wrong? Like I get so curious, like what's what's the bracing? Mm. What's the expression that makes him not want to go there to hear your experience, right? So he's not gonna answer that question because he's a Capricorn and he doesn't <laughs> it's gonna fundamentally violate his <laughs> and sense he doesn't of being feel, to no, feel into that's his right, body. That's right, that's right. That's right. <laughs> part Mer- of the problem. I'm curious, like, Marika, you know, because of your experience being adopted into a white family, like, where are you going with all this? I mean, I, I too, I mean, I probably won't be throwing them under the bus, but, like, I, it's definitely a lot of the overcouplings that I had are ones that I think white people have, you know, that I had to unlearn as an adult, you know. Not that in my family it was, like, diversity was wrong, but there just wasn't any. <laughs> You know, and there wasn't any in the town that I lived in, the school that I lived in, like the friends, the family, the boyfriends, teachers, like, and so I had to really build, you know, capacity for difference, you know what I mean, basically. And, and that was not with my family. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that they're, they're open and loving people, but diversity and the I don't see color stuff was very present. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Growing up from a lot of people, because that was sort of the I'm not racist at the time. In the 80s, that's what you said. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you didn't say I'm not racist. It was like, I don't see color. We're just the same, even mm-hmm. though maybe you aren't being treated the same. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to grow up and then go out into the world and see how the world worked, you know, actually worked and thinking and feeling more comfortable in white spaces than I mm-hmm. did. And feeling really uncomfortable in non-white spaces, which it's hard to find around here, but 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 I did find them, you know. And so, yeah, it's just been a lifelong. This is a very much a lifelong journey of of learning. And yeah, I think I did have a very binary sort of outlook on that, or it's like that you know, people of color can't be racist, you know, that type of thing. Like in my mind, like like how could. <laughs> And then, and then I went in the world and I met people, you know, mm-hmm. what I mean? mm-hmm. and it was like, oh, I have, bi- I have prejudices. I have biases. I, I reflexively think things when I see a certain type of person, I have more tools now to be curious about where that came from. And I'm glad that we have practices where we actually get to uncouple, you know, so that doesn't have to happen anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a journey. I love that you're you're giving the experience like Simone said it earlier too. You know, like people of color have it against people of color. Like I'm glad you're bringing that experience because I I just find that really important. You know, like coming from a Puerto Rican family, it was the same thing. You know, one side of the family were people of color, one side were what we would call white, and so they often would like remove themselves from other like darker Puerto Ricans or ones that weren't as assimilated, and so even within that like Latino community there was still this bias and overcoupling based on what they inherited about their own lineage, like their own bloodlines. And so I think that's why I love, I love bringing it through a somatic lens. Cause we, 
we start to lose identity and we start to notice like everybody is really vulnerable to an overcoupling based on how they're developed and what they see in the culture they bathe in. So I, I get really curious about like, again, we're talking about race specifically in this one. That's what inspired me with Simone's post. But like, if we bring the somatic piece in, how does that shift our ability to sit with these conversations in ourselves and, and with each other? I think the first thing that I think is so powerful about it is I think for a lot of people, it gives them a way to inter- interact with it without shame, right? And it's not personalized. Like it's not an attack on who I am, on my character, my values. Oh, if it's just a somatic thing that's happening in my body, it got un- overcoupled in my unconscious mind through all of these systemic issues. Oh, I can deal with that. That's different from saying you're a racist, you're a bad person. So I think the more that you're talking and I'm listening to you, the more I'm realizing, wow, this frame is so important so that people can start to divide one thing from another and have do something so difficult, which is to talk about this without shame getting in the way every single step of the way, which is just makes everything so slow and is counterproductive because it gets people arguing when we could be learning from each other, right? Yeah. I think that piece is really big. I just want to, I just want to feel that I want to kind of repeat it back for listeners and for us, you know, just to, just to hear that. I love the difference between like, you know, when you identify with the state in your body, right. And especially when it's a state, you don't want like a bias against somebody or like a racial bias against someone that's in your body. You identify with that. There's instant shame. And it's from that mechanism of shame that people double down and justify things and try to not touch it. Or again, the performative allyship, which is really just fawning. Fawning, exactly. Fall, right. They fall. You're right. Their I'm way. so sorry. I'm such a terrible person. What can I do to do better? <laughs> exactly. So sorry. Right? Yeah. Exactly. You're like, I suck. I'm white. I'm, I'm disgusting. Like, it's like, yeah, that I'm going to get on my knees. People and, feel yeah. better either. <laughs> like Marika yeah. said many times how uncomfortable that is for her. And so it's like, it's good for people to hear that because it's telling someone you hate yourself and you're filled with shame doesn't make them feel better about what they're experiencing <laughs> from you or in the world. It's about, you know, what Simone just it's said, like, with, <laughs> yeah, without the shame, you can actually, I mean, I've sat in front of so many people of color in these conversations and told them things like, yeah, when I lived in New York City and I was on the subway and a certain kind of black man came on the subway train, my body constricted. My mind loved that person. My body constricted. I grew up with a television that was on 12 hours a day. And in the 90s, that particular looking black man was constantly on a television set with the word criminal. And so my body reflexively does that. I don't feel shame about that because I didn't invent that. I'm not upholding that. I don't justify it. I understand where it comes from. Then I let it kind of die in me, which feels really good as much as, as it's able to. And then on the, on the contrary, I'll see a guy, a black man get on the subway and I'll feel open hearted because I dated a black guy. So like, that's another overcoupling. There's like this positive overcoupling, this kind of looking man. So it's like, you start to lose even race at a certain point because you're understanding it's this visual imprinted into my nervous system, conditioning, systemic racism, these things that we've really been passed on to us. At some Um, level, it's almost like so simple as to be Pavlovian, right? Like exactly what it is. Right. So which is... Why? I mean, there's also has been research studies, right? The same ones that prove that we all have unconscious racist overcouplings that said, if you take the same person, it could be a person of color 
who was just shown in a study that they themselves have unconscious bias against their own, you know, people with the same skin color. And if you were to show them images of like super successful, admired people of color again and again, just like flashing in front of them, here's Obama, here's Oprah, here's Beyonce, here's this scientist, here's right. Then they take the same test three minutes later, they will show a different. That's right. Uh, their overcoupling in the brain has got re- rejiggled. Right. Well, it's so we actually could, we we call it now. It's actually a new overcoupling. So there's the traumatic overcoupling, which is the one you brace against, and then mm. you're talking about the quote rewired with a positive overcoupling. Now you don't call it rejiggling. No, I love that though. <laughs> That's not the scientific term. <laughs> I do think the brain is rejiggling. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, that's which, important. Uh, that's important. Which is why, it. right, we talk about representation matters. And I'm going to be honest, for a long time, I didn't get that. I was like, you know, we should all be a meritocracy. And like, I was stupid. And I, at some point I was like, oh, wait, that's not a thing. And then I realized, oh, this is my representation. Because it literally changes people's brain wiring and body wiring. Literally. Yeah. Just depending on what we fucking see. It's literally that simple. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. What are you thinking over there, Camille? I see some, see some chameleon going on. Oh, uh, just lots of things. But gosh, what am I thinking? I'm actually going to drop to the body. But what am I feeling right now? It really is, at least for me, this idea. A critical part of this work is many of us constrict around talking about overcouplings related to identities or bias because. Eventually, we're going to be talking about systems of oppression, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, whatever. And those are forms of trauma. And most of us don't have the capacity to be with trauma. Other people's trauma. But we really don't even have the capacity to be with our own trauma. So mm-hmm. if, I am, if I don't have the capacity to be with my own trauma, if I constrict or become overwhelmed with my own either personal trauma, my generational trauma, my community trauma, I certainly can't have space for either your personal trauma or your generational trauma or, or your community trauma. And I think that's a part a lot of, a, a lot of us don't talk about, like the, when we talk about with the somatic spring of this conversation, it's about capacity. Do I first have the capacity to be with my own trauma? Because I can't do it for somebody else, but I can't do it for myself. See, that's important. so important to me because again, we're like you said, another reason why somatics are kind of like I don't even know. Found it's to me. It's, to me, it's required as dictated as dictatorial as it sounds. Like it feels like it has to be required in these conversations because if I'm in my mind trying to figure all this out, I'm going to dissociate from this body. So I want to be like an ally or I want to be someone that's helpful or I want to, you know, expunge my own internal landscapes I'm not aware of. And if I don't have the capacity, I'm going to burn out. Like I'm not going to be able to go there. So I, I kind of wonder, you know, for any of you, I'd like like a, a personal answer. What has it been like to be in a situation where you're trying to do some kind of work around discrimination of any kind? And you notice you don't have capacity for it. Like, how do you hold that space without ignoring it completely forever and honoring where your body is and not feeling shame for it? If you do, I'm curious. I just explode at my husband. <laughs> I just scream at him. Maria's like, me too. Yes, I see <laughs> is that true for you, Marie? Is that how you handle it? I mean, I don't scream, but that's just how I live with my in-laws. Okay. <laughs> so be lucky. My yeah, I, it's it's yeah, my reflexive person that I fire hose at is definitely him. <laughs> and like and how husband. does he absorb that? How does he handle that? He goes and plays video games for 18 hours. 
So that's his reflection. Oh, wow. <laughs> same. My husband. Right. Exactly. They're probably playing the same thing together. Probably. <laughs> all the husbands are at night, right? <laughs> so they're all going to alter regulate and find safety in the kind of, yeah, after exactly. you two explode on the <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, you got a fight response lady too? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, Camille, bring me some Virgo vibes. Like, <laughs> let's let the Virgos ground this a bit. When, how do you hold this when you're like, in my mind, I believe that person matters. I love them. My body's not there yet. Because that's a really controversial even idea to bring up, right? Yeah. The body's not where the mind wants to be yet. And see that, that, that for me, that's even slightly different than like not having capacity. So let me answer that part first. What do I do when my mind loves this person, but my, my body's not, not there yet? I can have unconditional love for a being and I don't have to be in relationship with that being. And I am perfectly okay with that. I guess the the sort of the corny way to say it is like, let's agree to disagree. And, and, I'm, and I'm in a place where I'm perfectly fine walking away from, from a relationship because we're just not in alignment. We're not in capacity. It has been really, really supportive for me to transition from a space of needing to convince or persuade to just observe. And then with that observation, I can decide or assess the dynamics of our relationship. And whether that's a person I'm talking to face-to-face or a company I'm engaging with or who I'm watching on TV, that's what, what I approach in, in that situation. But like if I am in a, in a situation where I feel myself getting overwhelmed when engaging across difference, it really is helpful. I mean, I, I think I probably describe it more as a flight response. I go straight into, that's interesting, say more. Because sort of in a passive-aggressive way, I think that that's my natural um, response. Yeah, as you exactly. said. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting, say more. It's like, it, to the point where I know it begins to annoy them. <laughs> so you, you exhaust so, them with questioning. Yes. That's usually my approach in, in those situations. It's interesting, though, as I'm hearing all, the, all, all, this, all this input... This question arises, and so I'm going to give us like an example, especially because we were originally centering race here. So there, let's say there is a white person and a black person. Let's make this like super simple, okay? And the white person's like, I have to get over my unconscious bias so I can be in relationship with this person, with this black person, right? Like that's their goal. They work together, they live together, whatever the situation is. Two things come to mind. One, is it okay just to realize you never will? Like, can we go there? Let's go there first. Boom, already there. I tell people in my, my biases training, like we were talking about earlier, let's take the stigma, stigma away. I got biases, a whole bunch of them. And guess what, y'all? I'm not really trying to put any energy into getting rid of them. Instead, mm. I'm putting energy into being aware of, the, of them and I don't always have to act on them. Could I uncouple all my biases? Yeah. Or I could just be aware of them because there are actual situations where my biases don't negatively impact somebody. And it's perfectly fine for me to have have my biases and my overcouplings. And there are situations where if I were to act on my biases or my overcouplings, they could negatively impact people. So that's why I want to have the awareness. So I can distinguish between the two situations. So yours is like redirect the energy of trying to like exercise this from your body, Mm -hmm. redirect it from that, which might never happen in this lifetime to the awareness. So because what you just said was beautiful, like I can have the bias and I don't have to act on it, which means it's not going to hurt you if I have the awareness is coming out. 
And if I don't have the awareness, what I'm also hearing is if I'm aware that I have them and then I do do something that like rubs against someone the wrong way or hurts their feelings, I'm not going to be defensive or shocked that I hurt your feelings. I'm going to be like, oh yeah, they're, they're in there. It just came out. I'm so sorry that it came out. Let's talk about it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I love that. What about you, Simone? I think a, p- a part of it that I observe is that a lot of it the effort to eradicate your own biases, to, to scrub your consciousness and body clean, clean of these responses, I think it might be coming from a kind of a fawning place where it's like, I want everyone around me to be comfortable and like me and think that I'm a good person, Yes, which kind of, kind of ignores a reality in which we actually are all very different from each other, you know? And of course, we have so much in common and as humans, everything. But I think it's a paradox. We are just as different from each other as we have things in common. And every single person in this room is never going to really understand what it's like to be fully Korean. And I will never understand fully what it's like to be Puerto Rican. Or I'm sorry, I don't know about <laughs> where the rest of y'all are from. You know what I mean? And it's it's okay. And there's, I think I am personally way more stressed out by someone else of a different culture background who feels the need to constantly affirm that they're bias-free and they get me. And that's a lot more stressful than someone who's saying, you know what? I'm never going to fully understand your experience. I might say things that are off sometimes. It's not like, well, deal with it. It's like, you can be like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. And also I respect that we have different experiences and that we Mm. might rub up against each other. You know, I love this. I love that. Cause we had this podcast a while back about safe spaces and how that's triggering to us. And Marika was saying, like, if she's in a space where someone's like, this is a safe space, she immediately has this feeling in her body, like, ooh, what, you know, what are we not allowed to say? What are we supposed to say? How are we supposed to act? And it's really what you're saying. It's like when it, it's a, like really a puritanical, it, funny enough, it's like really a colonial expression of like this puritanical nature of I've expunged all the sin in me and I'm like completely mm-hmm. clean now. And it's yeah, just it's very never Christian, right? Yeah, yeah it's very Christian. Yeah. It's just never going to yeah. happen. And I think it's, I like that we're hearing and people listening to this, that if you go up to someone again, fill in the blank with whatever the discrimination is of your choice at the moment. But it's if or bias, I'll say. When you go up to someone, you have a bias with them. It's okay that that bias is there. What's not okay is if you're throwing it on them and then you're defending it. Like that, that's, exactly. what that's what I hear us saying, which I think is new for a lot of people to hear because they think to do really good work, social justice work, to be in a right relationship, they have to just exercise all this, you know, unconscious stuff from their their body. And it's Mm -mm -mm. really just not even possible. It's like a pyramid scheme. I think that's why the sort of take it back to the original comment, like I don't see color, I don't see race can be so triggering is like, yes, you do. You know how I know you see race and color because I see race and color. I'm not asking you not to see race and color. I'm asking you to see that you see race and color. And when you see it and you're starting to act on it, just pause and question would I still be acting this way if this person was, was a different color or a different race? Again, going just back to that curiosity, like I was doing a session and a, a person really generously shared after we were doing some bias training that, oh, I realized that if there's a white person and this is a white man, if there's a white person walking around my neighborhood that I don't know, I don't really respond. If it's a black person walking around my neighborhood that I don't know, there is this sort of reflex in my body. Now, it's never been to the point where I've question them or call the police, but I can understand the origins of that. So now that he has that awareness, it'll 
probably never get to that point because he's willing to acknowledge that it's not about trying to, I should never have that reaction when I see a black person I don't know in my neighborhood, but because I can witness that I can stop myself from acting on it and getting to a point where it could actually cause that person some harm. See what you said is important because like, again, I don't see color. Okay. No, I see color. Then part two, what's over coupled with the color I see. And I think that that's what I, I never hear being discussed in any of these conversations is like, what are the unconscious meanings and physical somatic reflexes and associations with this color, with this face shape, with this sexuality, you know, whatever the, the expression is. That's what lights me up about this conversation. Because like, like Simone said earlier, when you realize it's something your body's doing, it's not like you're intentionally doing it and it takes the shame away so you can go there. Not take the shame away so you can ignore it and be like, I'm free of it. But it takes the shame away so you have the capacity to even touch into a part of yourself that would do something that would even appall you. And I think that that's the humility there is there are parts of me that would appall me if they come out or do when they come out. And that's part of me having an unconscious. Like that's part of being human. So can we build capacity for these rubs if we're conscious of them and not defending them? I think that's that's the difference. Luis has taught me so much about somatics just from me being in his world. And, but the first person who even taught me that this exists and the first person who got me to open my eyes to it was Resma Menachem, whose book I read, Grandmother's, My Grandmother's Hands a while ago. And one thing that he said in the book that really stayed with me is that when you have these unconscious overcouplings, I guess that's redundant because overcoupling is unconscious. Anyways, <laughs> uh, whenever, you, whenever you have these overcouplings and let's say you're a white person and you have certain ideas about what it's like, you know, what black people are like, if your body is automatically reacting in a way where you are, that is reflective of seeing another human being as a little bit less, a little bit more dehumanized than you, then you can't have that in your body without you also dehumanizing a piece of yourself. Right. So I, I probably butchered his words, but that's how I understood it. And that's why this is a lot less about you versus me, this people against that people, than it is about reconciling our own humanity, you know, within ourselves. Mm. And when you learn to, to see another, you know, people of other genders, other races, other whatevers as human, you don't even hold your own unconscious biases as, as a pronouncement of how evil and bad and, you know, sinful you are. That creates more human connection with yourself, with your body, which by extension automatically creates more human connection with others. That I is think that's a really important spot piece. Spot on. That's spot. Hey, one of the questions I wrote down that when I asked everyone was like, who are we doing this for? And you just answered it with that. And yeah. I, I want to hear what Marika says after, after I say this, because I think when we go into this from a fawning place, from like you said, Simone, I, I want to be liked by everybody, which is really a codependent place. If we're going to in that codependent place, I'm doing it for you. I want you to know that I'm pure. So you like me and know I'm not racist or whatever it is. But when you're doing it for yourself, like, can I humanize myself by being with all these differences in me? Then when I see the difference in you, I'm not as startled by it. Like I've been working with that from me. So it, there's the idea cognitively, I'm doing this for the other people. I'm doing this for marginalized people. I personally don't think that's a good way to show up to it from because if it's for them, I'm also posturing them as like needing me to do it. Whereas like they're already free in my eyes in their own body. Like, I don't know what they're going through. 
I'm not free if I'm the one, you know, constricted by the prejudice and bias. Like I want to free myself and then I'll show up to you without all that burden that I'm going to end up throwing on you somehow. Where do you go with that part, Marika? I'm curious because you and I talk about those kind of things a lot. I mean, I totally agree. What was coming up for me was how, especially since you said fawning, was all the tap dancing I did for white folks so that I could fit in. And then got out into the world and all the tap dancing I did for people of color so that I could fit in. And not ever feeling like I belonged in either camp. And the more work that I do, to Simone's point, with the, you know, my own biases and accepting my own humanity, the more it is like I'm freeing myself so I can belong to myself. Mm. And I don't have to think about belonging to those other things. I just get to be. That's just, I'm just, that's so powerful to me. Like, so I can belong to myself. I think that's so gorgeous. I also wanted to ask everybody, like, I would say this space with Luis and Camille and Evan and our guests, my husband and my best friend are the only people I feel comfortable talking to about this type of stuff. Like, in my progressive, you know, group of friends, this would not get talked about, you know, because we wouldn't want to have to, like, shine light on the dark parts, right? And... So I'm wondering how we can encourage people to create, you know, sort of a, I don't know if it's a group or if it's like, you know, who do you guys talk to? And like, how can we encourage people to have these conversations with people they're safe with or they feel safe with, you know? I think that's a great thing for us to play with because people listening might be getting really inspired, like, but where do I do this? And one thing I saw happen a lot in 2020 was people suddenly going into other cultures they never really cared about to try to do this. And then those other cultures feeling like, get away. We no, we don't need you here suddenly. So it's like, how do I, if I want to be in a diverse group of people, I want to play with this. How do I do that where everyone's like consenting and excited to do that? You know, I'm curious what you all think about that for, for people listening in particular who don't have access to a group like that. I would join Lewis's community. <laughs> <laughs> that is a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> this is why people love me. I just go around and market on everybody's behalf. That's right. Membership. Ding. Look in the ding, ding, ding. chat or whatever. <laughs> but listen, there's a kernel of seriousness in that, which is that, listen, if you want to get better at this, invest in it. You know? It's true. That's one of the yeah. ways you take leadership in being an, a locus of change in the communities that you're in is that you know, it's awesome to consume things for free and to get as much out of it for free as possible, but also it's worth investing. And I want to say the burden of this falls more heavily on the leaders than the others, right? So right now, as a leader of a sizable community, I'm thinking how, (laughs) it's funny. It's like, it started as a joke, like very recently, like on Facebook, very recently I posted, guys, I'm now a new convert into cold showers. I'm really into cold showers. And, you know, I used to hate them, but they make me feel so amazing. And all these people, it's like in my little Facebook community, were like, I'm going to take cold showers too. Cold showers. Like Simone is a cold shower influencer. (laughs) This became like a joke. Like now I'm an influencer. But anyways, you probably are an influencer in whatever community you are. Right. And especially so if you are, if you run programs and courses, I think the burden on those of you, those of us who are leaders, it's larger. And so if you want to lead, invest in this education. You will meet like-minded people. You will meet teachers who will point to, you know, more, I want to say, yeah, better ways of understanding ourselves and relating to each other. 
from, from the somatic lens, which is so valuable. And I think I know enough to appreciate it deeply. I'm not an expert and I want to learn more too. And I am going to invest, you know, and the ripple out effects from hashtag influencers. It's real. I have to, I want to piggyback on that. That's really important for me, especially with the somatic piece, because when your body, when you have a, an attunement to your body, you know, we go into this world and we're all like little tuning forks. So the way I'm vibrating out, it hits the tuning fork of the body next to me. And so I loved what you said is like, everywhere you go, you're an influencer. It's really true. You ride the elevator with someone for that 30 second elevator ride, your body is telling a story to those bodies and vice versa. 100%. Right. So when like Marika said, I belong to myself and myself, that amount of like settledness and awareness is so good to stand next to in a grocery store line. <laughs> you know, you don't have to be an entrepreneur or a therapist or running a large group like we do. You can literally just be going to the store and the person you look at who's checking you out, who's checking out your, your groceries, the transference there that happens body to body is like medicine. And I've seen that happen so many times in my life that I've experienced from others that I've been able to gift to others just by being present to what's coming up in my body. I love that. What would you say, Camille? Where would you go with the question Marika posed? Ah, uh, so where that is, it, it can be difficult. So I'm going to answer this in somewhat of a roundabout way. When you go somewhere and you're asking these questions and you get shot down, don't stop because it's probably going to be more likely you're going to be in spaces that don't have capacity for this kind of discourse than spaces that do. But use that as a learning opportunity. Begin to witness. Oh, this person's past capacity. Not good or bad, but this person's past capacity. They don't have capacity for this question, or they may not even have capacity for, for my presence. Because I think, or at least what I've experienced or witnessed in a lot of people, that they'll say things like, but I want to learn. I went to this one thing and I got shot down. And so then I guess I have to stop. So th that would be my recommendation. Instead of stopping, use that as a learning opportunity. And know that not one or one person or one organization is the end-all be-all for everything. Go to another one. Try again. And just like anything and everything, I always tell people, like, start from the beginning. Google it. You don't even have to interact with people first. I mean, during COVID, how many of us learned how to make sourdough bread? Not because we asked anybody about it, but because we watched a YouTube video. So watch a video, read a book, watch a movie. If you haven't seen Malcolm X before, watch that. You know, watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Listen to those conversations. Like, you can even start there and begin to witness some of these these incubator spaces. Like, we don't have to make it too complicated. Yeah, I love all that. And I wrote down, they don't have capacity for my presence. Like, I love that. That's like, when people hear the word compassion, sometimes they think it means like being a doormat. How much power is in that statement? They don't have capacity for my presence. So much more powerful than like, you should accept me here. You know, it's like gorgeous. I love that. Like you win, <laughs> you win big time every time you can so hold good. that. It's so good. So and I think I want people to really hear that because this is again, why I love somatics. Marika, when you're saying there's this very small circle that you feel safe doing this with, I'm hearing, I'm assuming you tell me it's probably because it's, it's an embodied circle. It's like, there's like a heart connection. You're in your body. Is that, that, that what you ex experience with that? Yeah. And also, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that's so important to me because one of the greatest, most powerful tools of colonization was the invention of race. And the invention of race is a dissociative invention. It removes body from place and makes an identity based on color. It's a dissociative concept. 
that like literally rips people from their bodies and, and, and figure, you know, literally and metaphorically. So it's interesting to talk about something that is rooted in dissociation, dissociates. So to be able to feel into your body, to be able to do body to body with the other, I guess what I'm saying is it paces itself because you notice your capacity. You mm-hmm. feel when the activation is coming up. You know, oh, there's my bias. I learned that for 10 years watching the news. I get why I don't want to hear this person talk right now. Like there's a different language and different way of connecting through the bodies than if you're in your head trying to get to the ultimate goal of like absolving yourself. I think it's also like a, like a, you know, very, what I would call a white supremacist, capitalist, industrialist way of approaching this as, okay, we have identified this problem. Let's analyze it and work really hard and hustle to solve it as fast as possible. Whereas bodies have a different rhythm of healing and bodies know how to find that rhythm on their own. If we would stop interfering with our minds. It's so true. It's so true. And it's funny. It's amazing because a lot of the intentions of trying to eradicate racism are colonial expressions like Mm -hmm. what you just said like the people are like we need to get rid of this this is horrible we're horrible it's such a dominant expression it's not about the slowness it's not about the capacity when you say it's so horrible it's really saying it's sinful and we need to go confess our sins and be it's like we're all puritans all over again you know that's right and i'm so pagan at heart and so i'm always thinking like the compost is where it's at like it all exists and it all gets really fertile from allowing it to exist in you we have a couple minutes left. Camille, you were going to say something. Oh, yeah. No, I was just going to say, well, two things. One, when we do that, we swing from one end of pendulum to the other. We go from saying or doing really sexist, racist, homophobic things, just saying, oh, you can't say or do that. Okay, so I won't say or do it. But the underlying sensation or motivation or whatever was feeding that behavior, it's still there. It's just being suppressed, but it's still coming out in ways. But, we're, but I'm not saying and doing those things anymore, so it doesn't exist, right? But if we can stay in that place of nuance, curiosity, and slowness, then we can really begin to tease that apart. But then the other thing I was going to say, I really appreciate it, Louise, that you said the word funny, because again, I mean, we say things like trauma healing can be fun. For me, noticing my biases can be really funny. Like there are situations where like I'm at dropping my kids off at school and another parent comes up and says, Joey's having a birthday party. Do you want to come? And Joey's parents are white. And I'm like, I don't know. And then I find, find out, Oh, you're queer. And I can literally feel in my body go like, yeah, that'll be okay. Like even, even though cognitively, I know, I know that there, I can still experience microaggressions or whatever, just because they're white and queer, but there I can witness in my body go like, they're queer. They're probably going to be cool. It's all right. So you, you can just begin to laugh at yourself. It's so funny. I agree. <laughs> I like the, the positive ones are funny. The negative ones can be funny. Like it can be such a joke because it's an invention. It's not real. You don't know the person in front of you. You don't know what it's going to be like. Yet the body's like, I know, I know, I know, because it really wants predictability. And it's funny. It's like a switch. You know, when we go to a restaurant, you see a two-year-old and they're like, mm, mm, and you kind of like, you're kind of like laughing. Because you know nothing's actually going wrong. It's just their body's having a, a big reaction. That's what these overcouplings are. They're, it, when we're in relationship with them, they don't become violence. When we're I, not in relationship with them, they can. If you allow me, I just want to end. I would add one note that I think is maybe a little bit more sobering, which I don't think this conversation would be complete, at least for me, without mentioning, is that there is an innocence to all of our innocence. And it is our bodies doing things. But the status quo of our 
all of our bodies doing this, reacting in the ways that bodies should to the same systems does harm more people than others. It inflicts more violence on certain bodies than others. And I think if you're on the end of benefiting from all of our, you know, unconscious overcouplings by and large, right? Although we all exist in intersections, I do think you have a greater responsibility to really think about this and to be really, to really be curious because our innocence has a cost and it has real human costs every single day. And so I think we can hold a paradox of seeing ourselves all as deserving of this kind of grace and unshamed way of looking at, you know, how our, how our bodies do our, do things. And also the other end of the paradox, which is, and it all has a real cost. So how do I become part of the change? You know, I wanted to highlight when you said responsibility, because we've talked about this before too, that that word can be so triggering for people because they, they think mm-hmm. like, it means like I created this. And I think what I love about responsibility is it literally like the word suggests like my ability to respond to it. It's yeah. it's incredible to think, okay, I didn't create this. I inherited it, right? It lives in my bones. Even if I'm benefiting from it, if I'm on the spectrum that benefits from it more, I inherited the system that helps me benefit. How do I respond to that, right? Exactly. That's where to me the power comes in, like what you're saying. Because I, as you're speaking, I saw this like, incredible vision is like mycelium you know connection across the forest of all these like innocent loving people with good intentions that are recreating and reenacting trauma patterns that hurt other people every day in direct relational ways and in indirect ways even from like where they shop and what they buy and i think when i hear you that's what i hear about this innocent piece is like it is innocent in the body like because you're unconscious to it the result can be really hurtful or damaging or harmful to people. So if you feel into that responsibility, and again, ability and capacity we can bring together, what's my capacity to respond to what I inherited? Like to me, yeah. that that's very powerful and very practical for people instead of the burden that a lot of people will feel when they hear that of like, I have to, I have to change the whole thing myself. I, I don't right. know what, to, I don't know where it's like, no, you don't. You just have to do what you have the capacity to start responding to right now based on your life and your experience. Thank you, Simone, for being so open-hearted to just join having no idea what we were talking about, but actually knowing everything we were talking about is a different language. I was like, what is an overcoupling? Is that a snack? Like, I love it. I, wish, I learned so would. much from you. Thank you so much. Uh, I learned so much here. Y'all were amazing. Okay, my friend, y'all take care. Good to see you. If you're looking for a one-stop shop where you can find the best of my teaching, all organized into a beautiful and actionable sequence, guess what? I got you. I took the best of my podcast episodes and created a whole damn workbook around them. It's called the Simone Starter Pack, and it's the ultimate marketing cheat sheet. I got countless emails from folks who downloaded it saying, this free resource is worth more than all these courses I paid thousands of dollars for. So, What are you waiting for? Go grab the Simone Starter Pack. The link is in the show notes. I can't wait to see what amazing results you'll get from it.